0: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition is the gentrification of resale upon us, Paul Pullman on net positive companies, Paula Glover on clean energy jobs, diversity and energy equity, and Walmart digs into regenerative agriculture. Our roots are showing this week on 350. It's October 1st, 2021. Welcome to Q4 and another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, definitely not in her fourth quarter, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
1: Hey, Joel, I'm still laughing at your pun there. I, I don't have roots anymore, so... I know,
0: you've, uh, <laughs> you, 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 your hair are your roots, so that's great. Good, good on you. I don't, know what <sighs> I don't know what I'm saying to it. I want to get off this topic really quickly, so... Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, it's a troublesome one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, you've recovered. How are you? I'm good. You've recovered from Climate Week?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah. I mean, now I'm just sort of grappling with what what I should be focused on for COP26 and and the lead in to be to be the most productive and to be most useful for our readers. You know, it's just kind of one sort of popping around thinking, okay, what's the theme I'm covering? You know, what are the couple themes I'm covering? Because that's the best way to approach a thing like this. Otherwise, I'll I'll. I'll flame out during the, <laughs> the week and I won't be able to actually say anything. So I know. It's yeah, f- figuring and
0: Figuring out yeah. if there's a frying pan fire kind of thing here between Climate Week and COP, <laughs> we are uh, starting to pick up a little bit more noise about that. We're getting a lot of pitches about things to do when you and I are over there in Glasgow, Scotland in early uh, first uh, half of November. So it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks there. And uh, of course, we will be uh, podcasting from there and, and sharing uh, whatever we can with the Green Biz audience. So I'm looking forward to that. But you know what? Let's share what we can right now with the Week in Review. So it looks like we're going to start with a couple of stories related to agriculture. Um, One involving Walmart and another involving another huge company, Cargill. And they both have to do with how these two companies are working with farmers. uh, One on specifically regenerative agriculture, the other on carbon offsets. So um, do you want to dig into this, uh, Heather?
1: Absolutely. So the Cargill P, yes, they're sort of somewhat related, but they're two big companies. And so I decided to glom them together um, this week because it it sort of, we haven't talked about regenerative ag in a little while. And this is sort of an evolution of what's going on at Cargill. They have a plan to advance regenerative agriculture on 10 million acres in North America by 2030. So they've been running a pilot program for a while and um, basically paying farmers to, you know, about a about thirty to forty-five dollars per acre to adopt these practices, and then at the same time they were they were buying carbon offsets, so they were basically creating their own carbon offset marketplace with these farmers. So Cargill obviously um, has many many commodities that it grows, and this was uh, particular to soybeans. So now that the thing that they're doing here is is basically expanding beyond their initial. Foray into this, into a, a scenario in which they would be inspiring enough of this to let other companies buy into this marketplace, essentially. So what was interesting to me not, is that they're, they're essentially, it looks like they're kind of trying to start their own carbon marketplace. Um, we know that there's a lot of different startups and and organizations working on this. And it it just seems to be like this big company now is, is effectively, you know, pushing into this space. So, what did you take away from the Cargill story?
0: Well, first of all, uh, you know, you say well, $30 to $45 an acre may not sound like much, but for mm-hmm. a lot of farms, uh, you know, their profit per acre is uh, maybe $200. Uh, it depends on the mm-hmm. crop, of course. And in some farms these days, depending on commodity prices, the They're actually losing money um they're the mm-hmm. negative you know thirty forty fifty dollars per acre uh which is just really sad to do all that work and lose money so you know this thirty to forty to five dollars can make a difference and may uh can in some cases uh, uh perhaps make the difference between profit and loss, but it certainly w- is is welcome uh particularly when you have uh, thousands of acres. So yeah, I mean, this is you know part of a continuum of what's been going on, and we certainly have talked about other companies. General Mills is the one that comes to mind that's that's been uh, uh, incenting its farmers uh, uh, to adapt regenerative techniques, you no know, tillage and cover crops and uh, precision uh, irrigation and things like that, uh, and then being paid per metric ton of the carbon that's sequestered because no tillage uh, sequ- allows the uh, soil to retain more more carbon, as do the cover crops and, and all of these things. And so, um, you know, it really is a uh, virtuous cycle here of, of Doing better for the environment, doing better profitably for the farmer, and as we as we look at how do you decarbonize sectors, I mean agriculture is huge. It's one of the biggest carbon emitters, and it's not just at the farmer level. Obviously, there's tractors and fertilizers and all kinds of things that are, that use fossil fuels or made from fossil fuels, and so. You know, this is one piece of the puzzle, but it's a really important one because, you know, we need to to transform uh, how we farm. I mean, uh, you know, another piece of this is is water here in California. You know, uh, the the agriculture, huge industry, obviously, in California, but it actually only adds a a single digits to the GDP, uh, state GDP. But it uses 80 percent of the water in in a state that is suffering Uh, from, you know, uh, perpetual drought that's only destined to get worse, although I'm sure there'll be up and down years. So we need all of these tools, uh, all of these uh, uh, arrows in the quiver, if you will. And I think this is just a great thing that these companies are, you know, really trying to do something significant.
1: Yeah, I want to spend a moment on the Walmart action, because that for me is also really interesting, because this is a a groceries giant essentially like we've heard a lot about the food companies the producers and and certainly walmart has their own um like house branded um food items right so have oh, they, they a huge have it,
0: part of, of what they sell it, it,
1: yeah and, and, the pro- so this, and far
0: more profitable than mm-hmm. than the other stuff
1: yep so they're working with like the the number that popped out for me here is thirty thousand midwestern what midwestern farming operations in in obviously United States North America to show one million like they're working on one million to uh, of the thirty million dollar uh, thirty million dollars one million of the thirty million acreage uh, by in the next decade so that this is like the first thing I've really heard out of out of Walmart about this too so that 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 popped up and I thought it was worth mentioning that um, this this company that's it's got the retail connections is now digging in so to speak as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment so
0: well, yeah. and, and this this initiative that they've been partnering with the Midwest row crop collaborative I think is one of the better models uh, it's been around for a while it has a number of other partners Kellogg's uh, PepsiCo Unilever um, uh, the aforementioned Cargill are, are part of this and it really is uh, set to how do they transform? Uh, all of the crops grown in the Midwest uh, in, in, into a regenerative uh, uh, way, and and this is, I think, one of the better. When people talk about what are some of the collaborations and partnerships that seem to be actually having an impact, I point to this one, and, and the fact that Walmart is now, uh, you know, is, is work. They've been working with them, I think, for a while, but are now doing this much bigger initiative i think is really bodes well uh, because you know we're still not there probably far far from it but eventually we will get to a tipping point where you know this is how agriculture is done in the midwest and of course there'll be laggards who who take years or decades to to get there but when you know a significant portion 30 40 and ultimately 50 or more percent of the food that is produced in these row crop uh, farms uh, are produced regeneratively i mean that's a significant achievement uh, and uh, we're far from that but i'm really encouraged by these kinds of stories yep so let's move to a story that you did uh, this week uh, for the Greenfin Weekly Newsletter uh, about AI and ESG and WTF. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on with all these AI, we all know what AI and ESG are, uh, but do explain.
1: Well, so there, there's a couple of things at play here, and we've We've been talking about the first of of the the things I'd like to mention for a little bit. um, And that is the the role and the potential for artificial intelligence to help investors and others that are watching companies um, that are making claims of whatever nature, you know, water conservation, greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but the potential of AI to basically Make those claims uh, 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 look real or not real, right? So, many um, fund managers and so forth are starting to use various technologies to 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 track the claims and to to really kind of put them through the the test the test of t- of, uh, of the data, if you will. So that was the first thing, and and like we, we've really been talking about greenwashing and ESG, and so. AI has become central, and one one of the things I f- feel like doesn't get talked about enough is it doesn't have uh, the potential just to d- detect these things, but also to deflect these claims. So, like if you're a company that is reporting, you could actually use this this technology to help you make more uh, provable, verifiable comments and, and statements in your in your disclosures. And I think that's that's something that we haven't written about enough. Um, there's some definitely a lot of tools coming into play that are helping there. And that's sort of the one one thing that I was kind of going off about. But the other thing that I, I started thinking about as as I was writing this is that the fact that so many companies are using artificial intelligence now in some form in some aspect of their business. If you want to take some of the, the stuff that we talk about here at Greenbiz, like energy, right? Artificial intelligence is held up as a sort of holy grail mechanism to help make the grid much more efficient to be able to integrate renewables, to be able to handle the two-way integration of, of electric vehicles into the grid. So many different um, different applications uh, of cutting, you know, cutting energy usage in a in a facility, et cetera. Um, and so we know that a lot of businesses are are using AI for some some reason. If if it's not ESG related, it's some other reason. They're 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 using it in their operations, but how are they deciding what that ai does how are they letting those algorithms make decisions are they unintentionally you know allowing for bias to be in those in those decision making processes if if i'm a financial services firm that's using ai to to assess loan loan applications am i unintentionally you know cutting out communities of color that, that haven't that don't have credit because they haven't been able to get credit. So does it perpetuate some of these systemic issues that we have? So that was something that I thought that we aren't talking about enough um, and that we need to.
0: Yeah, this is something I mean, we we actually started writing about this a couple of years ago. Our colleague John Davies wrote in the uh, State of Green Business Report, I believe, for 2019 or 2020, I've forgotten now. A piece called "The Bot" the bots are coming uh, about uh, the ability of of bots, uh, AI basically, and machine learning to to assess things. And it, for example, to um, look at, at reports, uh, company reports, and you see that one year they said. Uh, we may do this, or this may be a risk. Uh, and the next year, it says we will do this, or this is a risk. Uh, subtle word changes that a human may or may not pick up, but a machine certainly can, and and you know it 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 helps assess risk uh, on the part of investors. But as you say, you know, there's there's always another side, a darker side, if you will, there's social equity issues. And there's also environmental issues. I mean, these things, these applications use enormous amounts of energy, um, and uh so, sort of like Bitcoin as we're as we're looking at that. And so I think, you know, the, the question is always with any of these technologies is do they do more good than harm? Um, and uh or how do you mitigate the harm while uh, you know accentuating the positive, I guess. Um, but I think, you know, this is this is no longer a, uh, an emerging trend. This is here now. And these companies, this is being used. Wall Street firms, investment firms, uh, ESG data firms, risk analysis firms are using these things. And and I think we're going to be reading more pieces about this probably by you, Heather, since this is part of uh, Court of Your Beat. Uh, I think this is just a, a fascinating arena. So let's move over Speaking of ethics, to uh, this piece that our colleague Lauren Phipps wrote. Uh, She's the vice president and senior analyst in Circular Economy, runs the Circularity Conference we do each year, and she wrote a piece called, Is the Gentrification of Resale Upon Us? the gentrification of resale. So this is uh, the these companies that are, uh, we've always had, you know, Goodwill and, and Salvation Army and all of these uh, resale and vintage clothing shops. But over the past few years, for those who haven't been tuned in, the you know, big brands, uh, REI, uh, Eileen Fisher, uh, Patagonia, are are actually take, are selling refurbished uh, versions of their of their apparel and footwear. Uh, they're taking them back from customers, giving customers some kind of uh, credit for uh, for bringing them back, and then refurbishing them and reselling them um, and at a much cheaper price. And this is becoming a very very big business uh, in in the in the billions of dollars. There are companies that are, you know, now becoming unicorns—a billion-dollar valuation—who are doing this kind of thing. And and Lauren took a look at this and says, you know, well, you know, this uh, may not be all it's cracked up to be uh, on both an environmental and particularly the social level. So um, I think this is this is interesting. She she details some of the things that, uh, first of all. Uh, this may be detracting or uh, diverting uh, donated clothing that may have gone to those in need. And uh, there are a number of problems that she brings up here that, that make us rethink some of the challenges. So I don't know. What did you take away from this, Heather?
1: Yeah, you know, so this is like, to me, was like the the sort of Main Street versus Wall Street kind of um Expression of the re-commerce market, right? So we we have these smaller organizations that have been, um, you know, came into this with a purpose. Were, we're we're driving this this business got really popular, and now was, all of a sudden the big guys are getting in, like you were mentioning, and it's driving down the potential for um, for these smaller organizations to to compete, right? So. And and those smaller organizations could have been representing a niche, right? That isn't necessarily going to be focused on by the big guys. So, like, let's just say uh, there's a, there's someone that specializes in, in clothing from Africa, or or uh, you know, it just just a, a niche that that really could benefit from having its own its own space. The thing that struck me in the piece was just sort of the, the the comparison that the that she made with Uber and the rise of sort of Uber, right? And it, when it originally started, it was like people making extra money on their you know on their car, and now you have these people that have made a business out of it. So they bought a car, you know, they, they, and it kind of it, again it drives down the ability of the others to make money. So this is this that was one aspect of it, but also just you know the aspect of you know is there bias if if the, if the price gets Pushed up, you know. Is it going to uh, push out consumers that might benefit from it that that couldn't have in the past, like lower income consumers and so forth? So it just it, it it's, it's Lauren's great at doing this. She she takes a model that she really loves, <laughs> and and thinks about it from the other side and really asks. You know, I can see her asking herself like. What, what are the potential pitfalls here? And I think it's so important for us to do this on everything that we talk about in terms of sustainability. There are so many different angles and twists and turns and we just have to consider all sides. Going back to the ethics thing before, AI can be so wonderful and good, but it can also just have such a bad impact. So, you know, it's just be thoughtful and, and um, you know think about what this means.
0: Yeah, there are two sides to every story. And I love the fact that we're telling both sides. One of the icons of sustainable business has a new book. Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever, has co-authored, along with sustainability consultant Andrew Winston, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Given that intriguing title, I thought it would be time to check back in with Paul Pullman, who joins me now. Paul, welcome back to GreenBiz350. Hey,
2: Joe. Thanks. And I'm uh, glad to be back. It's been too
0: long. So, Paul, this is your first book. Uh, What inspired you to write a book?
2: Well, it is my first book, but um, sort of an enjoyable experience. And I'm very fortunate to do it with the great uh, Andrew Winston, who you probably know from The Big Pivot and from Green to Gold. And that probably softened the blow of writing it. But um, I had Adi actually come to me, Adi Ignatius from Harvard Business Review, at one of the WEF meetings that we had. And so many companies wanted to hear the Unilever story. And so many companies are struggling with driving to a more responsible business model. I can't reach them all individually, although I'd love to do this. So this book for us is really the start of a movement that uh, I hope sets a benchmark of what good corporate uh, responsible companies look like and, uh, you know, uh, corporate citizens. And uh, we called it net positive. The um, World Overshoot Day this year was July 29th which is the day that we use up more resources than the world can replenish. And frankly, every day after that, we're stealing from future generations. And it's time that we start to think not only in less bad, which is most of the CSR efforts that you see around, if you're lucky, or that we think about circular, but we really have to start thinking regenerative, restorative, reparative. And that's what we call net positive. And the companies that actually can deliver on that or strive to deliver on that uh, it's probably better to s- express it that way. We'll do well. Uh, companies that give more than they take is what we call it. And that takes courage because it's not easy.
0: So, I mean, a lot of companies would say that they give more than they take. We make products. We put them out there. We, we create value for our customers and for society through economic uh, development and all of that. How is this different in terms of being that positive? What are you actually referring to?
2: Well, what we're referring to is actually that you can actually show that you you get profits in your business, not from creating the world's problems, but from solving the world's problems. If you truly look at the externalities of most companies out there, uh, there are significant negative externalities if you want to. And what is interesting is that the higher these externalities are, even within sectors, we can compare companies, the less these companies are valued. I think the financial market is starting to look at this from a obviously a risk point of view, which they've always done, but increasingly from an opportunity point of view. So for us, net positive companies are companies that take a responsibility of their total handprint in society. We call it in the book, if you break it, you own it, but you have to be responsible for your total impact. Companies that look at optimizing the return for all of their stakeholders, companies that see shareholder return as a result of what they do not as a myoptic objective and most importantly companies that are involved in the broader partnerships and and transformations that society needs so uh, we call that one plus one is 11 in our book or it takes three to tango but these are the hallmarks of a net positive company
0: It's become a cliche to say that uh, business as usual isn't going to solve the many social and environmental challenges we face, but business is pretty much as usual and has been throughout this entire sustainability push that's been going on for 20, 30 years. How how do we change that dynamic? How do we really transform not just the incrementalism, not just uh, the small things, but really transform the business models, the economic systems? Isn't that what's needed here? And is that, uh, does net positive help get us there?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but what the book is really about is first and foremost, in order to get systems transformation or organizational transformation, you need leadership transformation. And the book spends a, uh, uh, quite a lot of time on your own journey. Uh, do you care? How to get your own purpose before you build that into your businesses. You cannot be a sustainable business if you're not sustainable yourself. You cannot be a purposeful business if you are not purposeful yourself. And that is why we spend a lot of time in Unilever. And perhaps I should point out that this book is not about myself or it's about Unilever, but very pragmatically takes the reader through um, its own uh, transformation as a leader, then how to implement it effectively in your own organization and in your extended value chain if you want to, and then how you can actually participate in these broader transformations to drive the, the, the bigger system changes. The reason that we don't see the progress that we need, unfortunately, is that many leaders don't have the courage really to set the targets of what is needed. Uh, they're playing not to lose versus playing to win if you want to, or that we are in systems that push back because we're not, driving these broader uh, system changes that are needed by moving these boundaries. This book, I think, will give you enough ideas. And then it gets to the tougher calls that I think many people have been uh, avoiding. What if your trade association says something different than yourself? How do you deal with issues of tax or corruption or money in politics or human rights standards in your value chain? Frankly, areas that business too long has been silent about or, um, or actually uh, non-transparent in many cases, and why it is so important that you now see a more active involvement, and if you do so, why your business would be better off as well.
0: Yeah, you mentioned courage, and courageous companies is in the subtitle of the book. How do we engender courage? Uh, is it even possible with the current uh, generation of business leaders, or do we need to bring in a whole new generation before that courageous companies idea really gets lift?
2: Well, we don't have the time, Joel, and and, um, so uh, we cannot just wait for the uh, next generation to come in, although they would be probably a more purpose-driven generation than many of us were or are, but we cannot wait for that. So we have to transform as fast as we can ourselves as current leaders or stewards and uh, with the responsibilities that we have, but then also letting in uh, the younger generation at the same time. It starts, obviously, with a stronger purpose. The more you are purpose driven and 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 work on a a bigger a bigger uh, contribution colin myers calls it to profitably address the issues of people and planet but that should give you courage and what we've seen during COVID is that the leaders that probably were more courageous in our definition that showed more humanity humility compassion empathy that had a stronger purpose were able to work in partnership thought multi-generational You know, try to solve these issues of people and planet. They just did better. And it takes courage, as you know, to set the targets that you know are needed uh, versus the minimum you can get away with. It takes courage to work together with other people in partnership because you're not totally in charge yourself. You know, it takes courage to actually um, say that you don't have all the answers for the challenges that you need to uh, solve. So that's why we talk about courageous leaders in this book as a good descriptor of what the type of leadership is that we need in the 21st century.
0: So the book is is net positive, but there's a different but sort of related term net zero that's been on a lot of CEOs lips these days. And it's also receiving more than a little pushback because of, you know, well, it's kind of vagueness and squishiness. Are you at all concerned that net positive will become another one of those widely used and maybe even overused terms that becomes all the rage until it comes under attack from critics.
2: Well, you're, prefer- you're referring more to the net zero on climate change when you then have offsets or promises of things that we do or don't know if we can deliver on, and people uh, see the urgency of attacking climate change. So net positive would really say that you move in the direction of Microsoft, that you not only become carbon neutral, but you take the carbon out since you started in 1975, or that you go the direction of Walmart, where we say, We have so many acres of regenerative agriculture or restoring the oceans. So we're really talking here about a different dimension of reparative, restorative. We're not talking about offsets in this model. And obviously it goes well beyond uh, climate change to encompass all the elements of uh, environmental, social and governance. So it's a broader concept. And I think we have an opportunity to make it come alive. We really want to, with this book, not just sell the books, but create a movement so that people say, I want to work for a net positive company. I want to go to a net positive uh, university. So it is up to us if you want to to set these standards. And I expect, to be honest, that these standards will go up uh, year after year, not only because the needs will be higher if we don't move, but also because of changing societal expectations.
0: Yeah. You mentioned a movement and uh, a lot of people would put uh, Unilever at the front of that movement. Of, of course, you're not no longer a CEO, but a lot of that is has to do with the work you did there. Um, and, and Unilever comes up on, on rankings and just uh, off the cuff, you know, if, name, name a company that's a leader in sustainability. But I'm wondering, who do you look to these days as as shining examples of uh, not just uh, leaders but potentially net positive companies? Uh, who do you see as leading the pack?
2: I think increasingly, what you've seen at uh, COVID as well, you've seen uh, CEOs come forward with bigger and bolder commitments in many of the areas. You see it now for the COP26 in Glasgow, the race to zero, the race to zero breakthrough has leaders in every of these segments. You also see bigger initiatives there of partnerships where the fashion industry comes together and attacks the issues of biodiversity, where you have the one trillion trees or where you have the financial industry coming together on decarbonization movements. So I do believe that you are increasingly starting to see uh, more and more companies. But what is probably where this book is adding value is that it requires you to be holistic. You cannot just pick one thing or pick and choose and not do the other thing. What this book talks about is how important trust is and how you build trust and how you embed it in all parts of your operations, from the way you run your pension plans to the way you... You uh, do your marketing uh, from the way you uh, have your value chain uh, transparent, uh, how you participate with governments or at a national or subnational level to drive these changes. So we're talking about this as a holistic change that is needed. And I think there are very few companies at this moment in time that would really, uh, including Unilever, by the way, that would really hit all marks of where we think we should be going.
0: Well, where we should be going is to net positive. That's the title of the new book co-authored by Paul Pullman. Paul is the former CEO of Unilever and co-founder of Imagine, a for-benefit company that mobilizes business leaders around the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, Paul, uh, it's a pleasure. Good luck with the book. We hope it creates the movement you're, you're hoping to create, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with you.
2: Thank you, John The pleasure is mine.
1: A theme threaded through many of the conversations last week during Climate Week NYC was the potential for the clean economy and clean energy transitions to create millions of new jobs, many of which are still being defined. Coming up with training and mentorship programs to help a diverse workforce get up and working quickly will be one of the largest challenges and opportunities associated with building back better. Against that backdrop, a new study released in early September suggests we have a long way to go to achieve that vision in the energy sector. The research, published in a report called Help Wanted, Diversity in Clean Energy, found that about 60% of today's clean energy workers in the U.S. are non-Hispanic whites and more than 70% are men. Here to chat about the findings is Paula Glover, president of Alliance to Save Energy, which is one of the organizations that helped orchestrate this study. Hello, Paula.
3: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: It's super to have you. Yeah. Uh, First, I wanted to acknowledge that it has been about one year since you were named president of the Alliance to Save Energy, and you've been on the job officially since January. What have you learned in the
3: past nine months? My biggest takeaway, I think, has been how impactful efficiency can be to address a lot of the energy problems that we have. Um, And we talk often about efficiency's role to address climate change, Um, but efficiency has a large role to play to address energy burden um, and to address energy insecurity. And so it's the thing that I'm most excited about in terms of what efficiency can do, but it's also the thing that I've learned that it can really help to address a, a multitude of problems, all of which are very big.
1: Mm -hmm. I know Amory Lovins uh, absolutely agrees with you. (laughs) We have a lot of people that focused on energy efficiency alongside uh, uh, the the renewables that we need to get deployed as well. It's a a super important part of it. So let's turn to the study. Um, I think one of the starkest revelations for me is just how big the clean energy industry's diversity problem is. To cite just a couple of stats for our listeners, Black workers represent 8% of the clean energy workforce compared with about 13% of the nation's total workforce. And women hold about 27% of clean energy jobs compared with 48% of jobs nationally. What were some of the biggest surprises for you, Paula?
3: I think you just read them off. Um, <laughs> and I would say the, the the number of the representation or lack of representation by of women um, for me was particularly surprising. Um, not a surprise about representation of African-Americans, um, because that kind of skews what representation is of Black workers across the energy sector. Whether you're talking clean energy, oil natural gas utilities, 8 to 10% is kind of where we land. I think um, representation is higher in the utility sector than, say, oil and gas production, for example. But women, I did expect to see a little bit greater parity in clean energy, and so that surprised me. I think the good news is though, right, that once you have the data um, and you know where you are, and certainly the industry has expressed a commitment to do better, um, we now know what we need to do and where we need to land at the very minimum. Um, and I would suggest that given the demographic shifts that we're seeing in our, our country, and we're going to continue to see um, over the next decade or two, that we've got a lot more to do. Um, it's not like a little bit, and it's not about getting women to say 48% and black workers to 8%, um, but we're going to have to exceed those percentages because the workforce is just going to be more diverse. And if we want our organizations to be representative um, of our communities, then we gotta, our numbers need to improve. But also I would suggest if we want our organizations to be financially sustainable in the long term, we're also going to have to do better. Um, in terms of our diversity numbers.
1: So how can we rethink skills development and training to address this and to, to get at that inequity?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say that we need to take a, at least a two-prong attack, a two-prong approach and maybe more. Um, so there's workforce development in its very traditional form, um, and and we need to do that. Um, But we also need to do early education, education of kids and others so that they understand what the opportunities are in our industry. I think we have a big opportunity to do that work with other sectors because we're all really, I think, struggling with the same thing, the same conversations. Um, The other piece, though, is and we're starting to see this Um, in other areas of, other sectors of the industry. But we are seeing, see this even in energy efficiency, right? Is um, workforce development among returning citizens. Um, Because we also have um, a mass incarceration problem. Ah, Okay, Um, I was just gonna
1: ask what you meant by returning citizens. By returning citizens. And so (laughs)
3: Johnson Controls um, is one company that has an exceptional workforce development program for returning citizens. And so that when those individuals are released, they have skills, Um, an opportunity to find a job um, so that you lessen recidivism. So there are lots of different ways I think that we can attack this and our organizations can be super creative um, and our leaders can kind of think about what's important to them. And if there's, they have a particular community that they're um, especially interested in, um, there's likely an opportunity to do some work, but it is, you know, school age children, college students, Um, people who are unemployed and underemployed, um, but also people coming out of um, another sector who may want to transition into our sector. And the good news is that um, we have opportunities for all those people. Um, And so we just as an industry need to be very deliberate um, and creative about how we're going to Mm attract these workers.
1: Yeah. I want to give a shout out to Block Power too, uh, one of the startups in this space that Uh, works on making low-income housing more efficient and and with clean energy as well. And they also have a program they just started in New York um, to to some of the points that you were just making. So let's go to one of the more positive findings. And that one is uh, especially relevant for the Alliance to Save Energy. And that's that the energy efficiency sector is apparently the largest employer in clean energy with more than, Mm -hmm. I think, 2 million employed Yep, so we are. yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how is the Alliance of Save Energy addressing the need to improve diversity in those numbers?
3: So last year, the Alliance adopted a set of equity principles, which really are kind of our guiding principles around how we think about diversity and equity and inclusion as an organization. And so we're doing work internally around our organizational culture. Um, We are expanding our own hiring practices to ensure that we have a diverse slate of candidates for every single opening. Um, We are thinking about um, who our vendors are and how we as an organization spend our money. And are we looking at diverse vendors um, even within our own? organization. Um, and then there's the work that we're, we're going to be doing to support our members. Um, and some of that may be the same, but we are thinking about it very broadly in, in that terms. But second to that is that we are a policy organization. And so we actually think about equity in the policies that we promote. And this year in particular, when we thought about our um, priorities for this Congress, Um, We ensured that we were thinking about diversity, um, that we were thinking about the administration's Justice 40 initiative, um, and are we um, promoting policies that are going to be good for all communities? Do our policies need to shift and change a little bit depending on the community that we are talking about? Um, Do we need to broaden? and open the aperture of policies that we need to be supporting as an organization. And so for us at the Alliance, we're really trying to take a very holistic approach um, to DEI and equity, um, not only just internally as an organization, but also in the work that we're doing as an association.
1: I want to go back to that in a second, but just are there any specific policies that you are behind right now that, that need more attention?
3: You want to mention any? So one of the policies that I think you know, the administration um, that we were focused on, the administration I think has right, is the National Climate Bank. Um, And so one of the things that we were really interested in as an alliance is how do you measure success and how often do you measure success, right? So it's one thing to have a policy or an initiative that says 40 percent of all this money is going to go to disadvantaged communities. We at the Alliance fully support that. I think that's really important. But we also think it's important to understand when are you going to measure success? And is it 40% over Twenty years, forty percent over one year, five year, ten years. What's the right time frame to me- measure? How often do you do it? And then how do you do it? Right? What? How do we define disadvantaged communities? How do we define success? Um, and so, you know, that's one policy that I think we believe gets it right. Um, that the measurement timing is right, that it has the right purpose. And so then you get to see if it's enacted to law and it's actually starts working. You have um, some kind of backdrop or time frame to kind of look and see, okay, we're doing well. We're not doing well. We need to adjust. We discovered something that we had not anticipated in this process that we need to change all of that. Um, the other policies that I think I would highlight would be open back better, um, which is sponsored by Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester in the House, and I think Senator Tina Smith, um, which is focused on public buildings. And 40% of that investment is supposed to go into disadvantaged communities and improvement of public buildings in those communities. Um, The Main Street Efficiency Act, which is another one of our um, priorities, focuses on small business development grants um, for energy efficiency, retrofits, et cetera. Um, and again, 40% should be spent with disadvantaged communities. So we are thinking about this in the policies, um, and we're thinking about how these things are to the benefit of these communities, but we're also, because we're efficiency and we appreciate and understand the job and economic impact that we can have on communities, we're also saying that money should be spent with diverse businesses who operate in those communities. That, so there's. A multitude of benefits that happens.
1: What do you see as the link between the sort of the clean energy jobs picture and getting more diverse individuals, um, you know, asso- uh, employed in that sector, and
3: o- the overall
1: energy equity concerns that we have in this country? Do you see a, them as being interlinked or in- intersecting?
3: I do think that they're they're linked. I think, you know, the the clean energy sector has a unique opportunity because we're new. We're newer than others. Energy efficiency is not new, but clean energy, very broadly, at least the way that we describe it, is a newer sector. And so, it can get started now, right? It's not like you learn from others' mistakes or things that we ignored in the past and and do it the right way from the beginning. And I'm excited because I think the sector is already there. It's not a conversation that you're trying to convince people of the importance of. Um, but I think that the conversation around energy justice and energy equity is a nuanced discussion um, and that I think thoughtful people would suggest that there are lots of things that we need to consider. And so it's about, again, equity in terms of who do you spend your money with and which communities benefit from the work that we're doing um, and who we hire. But I would also suggest and why I think efficiency is so important. It is about affordability for those communities. Um, And so, right? That's a huge link. And so it can't just be do whatever. And because if you're thinking about equity, you also want to ensure that there's affordability there. Um, If you're thinking about equity, you want to make sure that you're um, decreasing energy burden. If we're thinking about energy, we also want to think about how we're decreasing energy insecurity. Um, And so we as a sector in clean energy should be thinking about all those things. And I would suggest that's why having renewables pair with efficiency, um, is a great combination because you can do both of those things with energy efficiency and renewables. You're giving people access to clean energy. At the same time, you're you're reducing their energy burden and you're reducing energy insecurity. And we want to be able to do all that stuff.
1: One last question for you. How can our, my audience, the private sector, uh, and not just utilities, by the way, support the development of a diverse workforce in clean energy, one that is far more diverse than today's overall energy sector?
3: You know, I would say what we all should be doing is leaning in and working together. Um, the, what I will, and I, I cited the, you know, Johnson Controls program um, for returning citizens, but what makes it particularly unique is that Johnson Controls does this program, whether those individuals end up working for them or someone else. Right. At the end of the day, the program is established to give this particular community the skills so that when they are leaving um, prison, they have skills. And if Johnson Controls hires them or one of Johnson Controls competitors hires them, that's actually not why they're doing it. And I would say as an industry, if this is what we are committed to, then we should be working together to provide workforce development opportunities for people, um, to provide small business development opportunities for people, and whether we as an individual organization hires that one person who went through that program or a competitor, at the end of the day, if we're doing it together, we will see the goal collectively. We'll see that improvement collectively as opposed to a piecemeal approach. Great.
1: Thank you for that. Thank you, Paula.
3: Thank you so much for having me. You
1: just heard from Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. And we welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week. I'll be here this with Jesse Klein, associate editor, uh, for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.